0: Tim Ferriss again, the producer of this audiobook series. What follows is the first letter of the next volume, which is volume two. The letter is number 66 on various aspects of virtue. We hope you enjoy it, and we also hope that you continue listening to the letters in volume two, which contains some of my personal favorites. You may find that volume and my other favorite books, including those not related to Seneca, at fourhourworkweek.com forward slash books. That's all spelled out, F-O-U-R-H-O-U-R, workweek.com forward slash books. This concludes the reading of The Tao of Seneca, Practical Letters from a Stoic Master, Volume 1, performed by John A. Robinson, forward by Tim Ferriss. Presented by Tim Ferriss Audio, performance copyright 2015, Seneca and Marcus, LLC, all rights reserved. Based on The Moral Letters to Lucilius by Seneca translated by Richard mott Loeb Classical Library Edition, Volume 1, first published 1917, Volume 2, first published in 1920, Volume 3, first published 1925. Also, based on On the Shortness of Life by Seneca, translated by John W. Besore, Loeb Classical Library, London, William Heinemann, First published in 1932. Loeb Classical Library is a registered trademark of the President and Fellows of Harvard College. For more writing on Stoicism and practical philosophy, please visit That's fourhourblog.com. That's F O U R H O U R B L O G.com, where you can join more than two million readers per month. Thank you for listening. Letter 64 On the Philosopher's Task Yesterday you were with us. You might complain if I said yesterday merely. That is why I have added, with us. For, so far as I am concerned, you are always with me. Certain friends had happened in, on whose account a somewhat brighter fire was laid not the kind that generally bursts from the kitchen chimneys of the rich and scares the watch, but the moderate blaze which means that guests have come. Our talk ran on various themes, as is natural at a dinner. It pursued no chain of thought to the end, but jumped from one topic to another. We then had read to us a book by Quintus Sextius the Elder. He is a great man, if you have any confidence in my opinion and a real Stoic, though he himself denies it. Ye gods, what strength and spirit one finds in him. This is not the case with all philosophers. There are some men of illustrious name whose writings are sapless. They lay down rules, they argue, and they quibble. They do not infuse spirit simply because they have no spirit. But when you come to read Sextus, you will say, He is alive. He is strong. He is free. He is more than a man. He fills me with a mighty confidence before I close his book. I shall acknowledge to you the state of mind I am in when I read his works. I want to challenge every hazard. I want to cry, Why keep me waiting, fortune? Enter the lists. Behold, I am ready for you. I assume the spirit of a man who seeks where he may make trial of himself where he may show his worth. And fretting mid the unwarlock flocks he prays, some foam-flecked boar may cross his path, or else a tawny lion stalking down the hills. I want something to overcome, something on which I may test my endurance, for this is another remarkable quality that sextius possesses. He will show you the grandeur of the happy life and yet will not make you despair of attaining it. You will understand that it is on high, but that it is accessible to him who has the will to seek it. And virtue herself will have the same effect upon you, of making you admire her, and yet hope to attain her. In my own case, at any rate, the very contemplation of wisdom takes much of my time. I gaze upon her with bewilderment, Just as I sometimes gaze upon the firmament itself, which I often behold as if I saw it for the first time. Hence I worship the discoveries of wisdom and their discoverers. To enter, as it were, into the inheritance of many predecessors is a delight. It was for me that they laid up this treasure. It was for me that they toiled. But we should play the part of a careful householder. We should increase what we have inherited. This inheritance shall pass from me to my descendants larger than before. Much still remains to do, and much will always remain, and he who shall be born a thousand ages hence will not be barred from his opportunity of adding something further. But even if the old masters have discovered everything, one thing will always be new, the application and the scientific study and classification Of the discoveries made by others. Assume that prescriptions have been handed down to us for the healing of the eyes. There is no need of my searching for others in addition. But for all that, these prescriptions must be adapted to the particular disease and to the particular stage of the disease. Use this prescription to relieve granulation of the eyelids, that to reduce the swelling of the lids, this to prevent sudden pain, Or a rush of tears, that to sharpen the vision. Then compound these several prescriptions, watch for the right time of their application, and supply the proper treatment in each case. The cures for the spirit also have been discovered by the ancients, but it is our task to learn the method and the time of treatment. Our predecessors have worked much improvement But have not worked out the problem. They deserve respect, however, and should be worshipped with a divine ritual. Why should I not keep statues of great men to kindle my enthusiasm and celebrate their birthdays? Why should I not continually greet them with respect and honor? The reverence which I owe to my own teachers, I owe in like measure to those teachers of the human race, the source from which the beginnings of such great blessings have flowed. If I meet a council or a praetor, I shall pay him all the honor which his post of honor is wont to receive. I shall dismount, uncover, and yield the road. What then? Shall I admit to my soul with less than the highest marks of respect, Marcus Cato, the elder and the younger, Lilius the wise, Socrates and Plato, Zeno and Cleanthes? I worship them in very truth and always rise to do honor to such noble names. Farewell. Letter 65 On the First Cause I shared my time yesterday with ill health. It claimed for itself all the period before noon. In the afternoon, however, it yielded to me and so I first tested my spirit by reading. Then, when reading was found to be possible, I dared to make more demands upon the spirit, or, perhaps I should say, to make more concessions to it. I wrote a little, and indeed with more concentration than usual, for I am struggling with a difficult subject, and do not wish to be downed. In the midst of this, some friends visited me, with the purpose of employing force, and of restraining me, is if I were a sick man indulging in some excess. So conversation was substituted for writing, and from this conversation I shall communicate to you the topic which is still the subject of debate, for we have appointed you referee. You have more of a task on your hands than you suppose, for the argument is threefold. Our Stoic philosophers, as you know, declare that there are two things in the universe which are the source of everything, namely, Cause and matter. Matter lies sluggish, a substance ready for any use, but sure to remain unemployed if no one sets it in motion. Cause, however, by which we mean reason, molds matter and turns it in whatever direction it will, producing thereby various concrete results. Accordingly, there must be, in the case of each thing, that from which it is made, and, next, an agent by which it is made. The former is its material, the latter its cause. All art is but imitation of nature. Therefore, let me apply these statements of general principles to the things which have to be made by man. A statue, for example, has afforded matter which was to undergo treatment at the hands of the artist, and has had an artist who was to give form to the matter. Hence, in the case of the statue, the material was bronze, The cause was the workman, and so it goes with all things. They consist of that which is made, and of the Maker. The Stoics believe in one cause only, the Maker, but Aristotle thinks that the word cause can be used in three ways. The first cause, he says, is the actual matter, without which nothing can be created. The second is the workman. The third is the form which is impressed upon every work, a statue, for example. This last is what Aristotle calls the edos. There is two, says he, a fourth, the purpose of the work as a whole. Now, I shall show you what this last means. Bronze is the first cause of the statue, for it could never have been made unless there had been something from which it could be cast and molded. The second cause is the artist, for without the skilled hands of a workman, that bronze could not have been shaped to the outlines of the statue. The third cause is the form, inasmuch as our statue could never be called the lance-bearer or the boy binding his hair, had not this special shape been stamped upon it. The fourth cause is the purpose of the work, for if this purpose had not existed, the statue would not have been made. Now. What is this purpose? It is that which attracted the artist which he followed when he made the statue. It may have been money if he has made it for sale, or renown if he has worked for reputation, or religion if he has wrought it as a gift for a temple. Therefore this also is a cause contributing towards the making of the statue. Or do you think that we should avoid an including among the causes of a thing which has been made? that element without which the thing in question would not have been made. To these four Plato adds a fifth cause, the pattern which he himself calls the idea, for it is this that the artist gazed upon when he created the work which he had decided to carry out. Now, it makes no difference whether he has this pattern outside himself, that he may direct his glance to it, or within himself, conceived and placed there by himself. God has within himself these patterns of all things, and his mind comprehends the harmonies and the measures of the whole totality of things which are to be carried out. He is filled with these shapes which Plato calls the ideas, imperishable, unchangeable, not subject to decay. And therefore, though men die, humanity itself, or the idea of man, according to which man is molded, lasts on, and though men toil and perish, it suffers no change. Accordingly, there are five causes, as Plato says. The material, the agent, the makeup, the model, and the end in view. Last comes the result of all these. Just as in the case of the statue, to go back to the figure with which we began, the material is the bronze, the agent is the artist, the makeup is the form which is adapted to the material, the model is the pattern imitated by the agent, The end in view is the purpose in the maker's mind, and finally, the result of all these is the statue itself. The universe also, in Plato's opinion, possesses all these elements. The agent is God. The source, matter. The form, the shape and the arrangement of the visible world. The pattern is doubtless the model according to which God has made this great and most beautiful creation. The purpose is his object in so doing. Do you ask what God's purpose is? It is goodness. Plato, at any rate, says, What was God's reason for creating the world? God is good, and no good person is grudging of anything that is good. Therefore, God made it the best world possible. Hand down your opinion, then, O Judge. State who seems to you to say what is truest, and not who says what is absolutely true. For to do that is as far beyond our ken as truth itself. This throng of causes, defined by Aristotle and by Plato, embraces either too much or too little. For if they regard as causes of an object that is to be made, everything without which the object cannot be made, they have named too few. Time must be included among the causes, for nothing can be made without time. They must also include place. For if there be no place where a thing can be made, it will not be made. And motion too. Nothing is either made or destroyed without motion. There is no art without motion, no change of any kind. Now, however, I am searching for the first, the general cause. This must be simple inasmuch as matter too is simple. Do we ask what cause is? It is surely creative reason, in other words, God for those elements to which you referred, are not a great series of independent causes. They all hinge on one alone, and that will be the creative cause. Do you maintain that form is a cause? This is only what the artist stamps upon his work. It is part of a cause, but not the cause. Neither is the pattern a cause, but an indispensable tool of the cause. His pattern is as indispensable to the artist as the chisel or the file. Without these, art can make no progress. But for all that, these things are neither parts of the art, nor causes of it. Then, perhaps you will say, the purpose of the artist, that which leads him to undertake to create something, is the cause. It may be a cause. It is not, however, the efficient cause, but only an accessory cause. But there are countless accessory causes. What we are discussing is the general cause. Now the statement of Plato and Aristotle is not in accord with their usual penetration, when they maintain that the whole universe, the perfectly wrought work, is a cause. For there is a great difference between a work and the cause of a work. Either give your opinion or, as is easier in cases of this kind, declare that the matter is not clear and call for another hearing. But you will reply. What pleasure do you get from wasting your time on these problems, which relieve you of none of your emotions, rout none of your desires? So far as I am concerned, I treat and discuss them as matters which contribute greatly toward calming the spirit, and I search myself first, and then the world about me. And not even now am I, as you think, wasting my time, for all these questions, provided that they be not chopped up and torn apart into such unprofitable refinements, elevate and lighten the soul, which is weighted down by a heavy burden, and desires to be freed, and to return to the elements of which it was once a part. For this body of ours is a weight upon the soul, and its penance. As the load presses down, the soul is crushed, and is in bondage. Unless philosophy has come to its assistance, And has bid it take fresh courage by contemplating the universe and has turned it from things earthly to things divine. There it has its liberty. There it can roam abroad. Meantime it escapes the custody in which it is bound and renews its life in heaven. Just as skilled workmen who have been engaged upon some delicate piece of work which wearies their eyes with straining, if the light which they have is niggardly or uncertain, Go forth into the open air, and in some park devoted to the people's recreation, delight their eyes in the generous light of day. So the soul, imprisoned as it has been in this gloomy and darkened house, seeks the open sky whenever it can, and in the contemplation of the universe finds rest. The wise man, the seeker after wisdom, is bound closely indeed to his body. But he is an absentee so far as his better self is concerned, and he concentrates his thoughts upon lofty things. Bound, so to speak, to his oath of allegiance, he regards the period of life as his term of service. He is so trained that he neither loves nor hates life. He endures a mortal lot, although he knows that an ampler lot is in store for him. Do you forbid me to contemplate the universe? Do you compel me to withdraw from the whole And restrict me to a part? May I not ask what are the beginnings of all things, who molded the universe, who took the confused and conglomerate mass of sluggish matter and separated it into its parts? May I not inquire who is the master builder of this universe, how the mighty bulk was brought under the control of law and order, who gathered together the scattered atoms, who separated the disordered elements and assigned an outward form to elements that lay in one vast shapelessness? Or whence came all the expanse of light, and whether is it fire, or even brighter than fire? Am I not to ask these questions? Must I be ignorant of the heights whence I have descended? Whether I am to see this world but once, or to be born many times? What is my destination afterwards? What abode awaits my soul on its release from the laws of slavery among men? Do you forbid me to have a share in heaven? In other words, do you bid me live with my head bowed down? No, I am above such an existence. I was born to a greater destiny than to be a mere chattel of my body, and I regard this body as nothing but a chain which manacles my freedom. Therefore, I offer it as a sort of buffer to fortune, and shall allow no wound to penetrate through to my soul. For my body is the only part of me which can suffer injury. In this dwelling, which is exposed to peril, my soul lives free. Never shall this flesh drive me to feel fear or to assume any pretense that is unworthy of a good man. Never shall I lie in order to honor this petty body. When it seems proper, I shall sever my connection with it. And at present, while we are bound together, our alliance shall nevertheless not be one of equality. The soul shall bring all quarrels before its own tribunal. To despise our bodies is sure freedom. To return to our subject. This freedom will be greatly helped by the contemplation of which we were just speaking. All things are made up of matter and of God. God controls matter which encompasses him and follows him as its guide and leader. And that which creates, in other words, God, is more powerful and precious than matter, which is acted upon by God. God's place in the universe corresponds to the soul's relation to man. World matter corresponds to our mortal body. Therefore, let the lower serve the higher. Let us be brave in the face of hazards. Let us not fear wrongs or wounds or bonds or poverty. And what is death? It is either the end or a process of change. I have no fear of ceasing to exist. It is the same as not having begun. Nor do I shrink from changing into another state, because I shall, under no conditions, be as cramped as I am now. Farewell. letter 66 on various aspects of virtue i have just seen my former schoolmate claranus for the first time in many years you need not wait for me to add that he is an old man but i assure you that i found him hale in spirit and sturdy although he is wrestling with a frail and feeble body for Nature acted unfairly when she gave him a poor domicile for so rare a soul. Or, perhaps it was because she wished to prove to us that an absolutely strong and happy mind can lie hidden under any exterior. Be that as it may, Claranus overcomes all these hindrances, and by despising his own body has arrived at a stage where he can despise other things also. The poet who sang... Worth shows more pleasing in a form that's fair. Is, in my opinion, mistaken. For virtue needs nothing to set it off. It is its own great glory, and it hallows the body in which it dwells. At any rate, I have begun to regard Claranus in a different light. He seems to me handsome, and as well set up in body as in mind. A great man can spring from a hovel. So can a beautiful and great soul from an ugly and insignificant body. For this reason, nature seems to me to breed certain men of this stamp with the idea of proving that virtue springs into birth in any place whatever. Had it been possible for her to produce souls by themselves and naked, she would have done so. As it is, nature does a still greater thing, for she produces certain men who, though hampered in their bodies, None the less break through the obstruction, I think Cloranus has been produced as a pattern that we might be enabled to understand that the soul is not disfigured by the ugliness of the body, but rather the opposite that the body is beautified by the comeliness of the soul now though Cloranus and I have spent very few days together, we have nevertheless had many conversations which I will at once pour forth and pass on to you. The first day, we investigated this problem. How can goods be equal if they are of three kinds? For certain of them, according to our philosophical tenets, are primary, such as joy, peace, and the welfare of one's country. Others are of the second order, molded in an unhappy material, such as the endurance of suffering, And self-control during severe illness. We shall pray outright for the goods of the first class. For the second class we shall pray only if the need shall arise. There is still a third variety as, for example, a modest gait, a calm and honest countenance, and a bearing that suits the man of wisdom. Now, how can these things be equal when we compare them? If you grant that we ought to pray for the one, and avoid the other. If we would make distinctions among them, we had better return to the first good, and consider what its nature is, the soul that gazes upon truth, that is skilled in what should be sought and what should be avoided, establishing standards of value not according to opinion but according to nature. The soul that penetrates the whole world and directs its contemplating gaze upon all its phenomena, paying strict attention to thoughts and actions, equally great and forceful, superior alike to hardships and blandishments, yielding itself to neither extreme of fortune, rising above all blessings and tribulations, absolutely beautiful, perfectly equipped with grace as well as with strength, healthy and sinewy, unruffled, undismayed, one which no violence can shatter, one which acts of chance can neither exalt nor depress. A soul like this is virtue itself. There you have its outward appearance, if it should ever come under a single view and show itself once in all its completeness. But there are many aspects of it. They unfold themselves, according as life varies and as actions differ. But virtue itself does not become less or greater. For the supreme good cannot diminish, nor may virtue retrograde. Rather is it transformed, now into one quality and now into another, shaping itself according to the part which it is to play. Whatever it has touched, it brings into likeness with itself, and dies with its own color. It adorns our actions, our friendships, and sometimes entire households which it has entered and set in order. Whatever it is handled, it forthwith makes lovable, notable, admirable. Therefore, the power and the greatness of virtue cannot rise to greater heights, because increase is denied to that which is superlatively great. You will find nothing straighter than the straight, nothing truer than the true, and nothing more temperate than that which is temperate. Every virtue is limitless, for limits depend upon definite measurements. Constancy cannot advance further, any more than fidelity, or truthfulness, or loyalty. What can be added to that which is perfect? Nothing otherwise that was not perfect, to which something has been added. Nor can anything be added to virtue either, for if anything can be added thereto, it must have contained a defect. Honor, also, permits of no addition, for it is honorable because of the very qualities which I have mentioned. What, then? Do you think that propriety, justice, lawfulness, do not also belong to the same type, and that they are kept within fixed limits? The ability to increase is proof that a thing is still imperfect. The good, in every instance, is subject to these same laws. The advantage of the state and that of the individual are yoked together. Indeed, it is as impossible to separate them as to separate the commendable from the desirable. Therefore virtues are mutually equal, and so are the works of virtue, and all men who are so fortunate as to possess these virtues. But, Since the virtues of plants and of animals are perishable, they are also frail and fleeting and uncertain. They spring up and they sink down again, and for this reason they are not rated at the same value. But to human virtues only one rule applies, for right reason is single and of but one kind. Nothing is more divine than the divine, or more heavenly than the heavenly. Mortal things decay, fall, are worn out, grow up, are exhausted, and replenished. Hence, in their case, in view of the uncertainty of their lot, there is inequality. But of things divine, the nature is one. Reason, however, is nothing else than a portion of the divine spirit set in a human body. If reason is divine, and the good in no case lacks reason, then the good in every case is divine. And furthermore, there is no distinction between things divine, hence there is none between goods either. Therefore it follows that joy and a brave, unyielding endurance of torture are equal goods. For in both there is the same greatness of soul, relaxed and cheerful in the one case, in the other combative and braced for action. What? Do you not think that the virtue of him who bravely storms the enemy's stronghold is equal to that of him who endures a siege with the utmost patience? Great is Scipio when he invests Numantia and constrains and compels the hands of an enemy whom he could not conquer to resort to their own destruction. Great also are the souls of the defenders. Men who know that, as long as the path to death lies open, the blockade is not complete. Men who breathe their last in the arms of liberty. In like manner, the other virtues are also equal as compared with one another. Tranquility, simplicity, generosity, constancy, equanimity, endurance. For underlying them all is a single virtue, that which renders the soul straight And unswerving. What then, you say? Is there no difference between joy and unyielding endurance of pain? None at all, as regards the virtues themselves. Very great, however, in the circumstances in which either of these two virtues is displayed. In the one case, there is a natural relaxation and loosening of the soul. In the other, there is an unnatural pain. Hence, these circumstances, between which a great distinction can be drawn, belong to the category of indifferent things, but the virtue shown in each case is equal. Virtue is not changed by the matter with which it deals. If the matter is hard and stubborn, it does not make the virtue worse. If pleasant and joyous, it does not make it better. Therefore, virtue necessarily remains equal. For, in each case, what is done is done with equal uprightness, with equal wisdom, and with equal honor. Hence, the states of goodness involved are equal, and it is impossible for a man to transcend these states of goodness by conducting himself better, either the one man in his joy, or the other amid his suffering. And two goods, neither of which can possibly be better, are equal. For, if things which are extrinsic to virtue can either diminish or increase virtue, then that which is honorable ceases to be the only good. If you grant this, honor has wholly perished. And why? Let me tell you. It is because no act is honorable that is done by an unwilling agent that is compulsory. Every honorable act is voluntary. Alloy it with reluctance, complaints, cowardice, or fear, and it loses its best characteristic, self-approval. That which is not free cannot be honorable, for fear means slavery. The honorable is wholly free from anxiety and is calm. If it ever objects, laments, or regards anything as an evil, it becomes subject to disturbance and begins to flounder about amid great confusion. For on one side the semblance of right calls to it, on the other the suspicion of evil drags it back. Therefore, when a man is about to do something honorable, he should not regard any obstacles as evils, even though he regard them as inconvenient, but he should will to do the deed and do it willingly for every honorable act is done without commands or compulsion. It is unalloyed and contains no admixture of evil. I know what you may reply to me at this point. Are you trying to make us believe that it does not matter whether a man feels joy or whether he lies upon the rack and tires out his torturer? I might say in answer, Epicurus, also maintains that the wise man, though he is being burned in the bull of Phalaris, will cry out, "'Tis pleasant, and concerns me not at all.'" Why need you wonder, if I maintain that he who reclines at a banquet, and the victim who stoutly withstands torture, possess equal goods, when Epicurus maintains a thing that is harder to believe, namely, that it is pleasant to be roasted in this way? but the reply which I do make is that there is great difference between joy and pain. If I am asked to choose, I shall seek the former and avoid the latter. The former is according to nature, the latter contrary to it. So long as they are rated by this standard, there is a great gulf between. But when it comes to a question of the virtue involved, the virtue, in each case, is the same, whether it comes through joy or through sorrow. Vexation and pain and other inconveniences are of no consequence, for they are overcome by virtue. Just as the brightness of the sun dims all lesser lights, so virtue, by its own greatness, shatters and overwhelms all pains, annoyances, and wrongs, and wherever its radiance reaches All lights which shine without the help of virtue are extinguished, and inconveniences, when they come in contact with virtue, play no more important a part than does a storm cloud at sea. This can be proved to you by the fact that the good man will hasten unhesitatingly to any noble deed. Even though he be confronted by the hangman, the torturer, and the stake, he will persist regarding not what he must suffer, but what he must do, and he will entrust himself as readily to an honorable deed as he would to a good man. He will consider it advantageous to himself, safe, propitious. And he will hold the same view concerning an honorable deed, even though it be fraught with sorrow and hardship, as concerning a good man who is poor or wasting away in exile. Come now, contrast a good man who is rolling in wealth with a man who has nothing, except that in himself he has all things. They will be equally good, though they experience unequal fortune. This same standard, as I have remarked, is to be applied to things as well as to men. Virtue is just as praiseworthy if it dwells in a sound and free body as in one which is sickly or in bondage. Therefore, as regards your own virtue also, you will not praise it any more if fortune has favored it by granting you a sound body than if fortune has endowed you with a body that is crippled in some member, since that would mean rating a master low because he is dressed like a slave. For all those things over which chance holds sway are chattels, money, person, position. They are weak, shifting, prone to perish, and of uncertain tenure. On the other hand, the works of virtue are free and unsubdued, neither more worthy to be sought when fortune treats them kindly, nor less worthy when any adversity weighs upon them. Now, friendship in the case of men corresponds to desirability in the case of things. You would not, I fancy, love a good man, if he were rich, any more than if he were poor, nor would you love a strong and muscular person more than one who is slender and of delicate constitution. Accordingly, neither will you seek or love a good thing that is mirthful and tranquil more than one that is full of perplexity and toil. Or, if you do this, you will, in the case of two equally good men, care more for him who is neat and well-groomed than for him who is dirty and unkempt. You would next go so far as to care more for a good man who is sound in all his limbs and without blemish than for one who is weak or purblind. And gradually your fastidiousness would reach such a point that, of two equally just and prudent men, you would choose him who has long, curling hair. Whenever the virtue in each one is equal, the inequality in their other attributes is not apparent, for all other things are not parts, but merely accessories. Would any man judge his children so unfairly as to care more for a healthy son than for one who was sickly, or for a tall child of unusual stature, more than for one who was short or of middling height? Wild beasts show no favoritism among their offspring. They lie down in order to suckle all alike. Birds make fair distribution of their food. Ulysses hastens back to the rocks of his Ithaca, as eagerly as Agamemnon speeds to the kingly walls of Mycenae. For no man loves his native land because it is great. He loves it because it is his own. And... What is the purpose of all this? That you may know that virtue regards all her works in the same light, as if they were her children, showing equal kindness to all, and still deeper kindness to those which encounter hardships. For even parents lean with more affection towards those of their offspring for whom they feel pity. Virtue, too, does not necessarily love more deeply those of her works whom she beholds in trouble And under heavy burdens, but, like good parents, she gives them more of her fostering care. Why is no good greater than any other good? It is because nothing can be more fitting than that which is fitting, and nothing more level than that which is level. You cannot say that one thing is more equal to a given object than another thing. Hence, also, nothing is more honorable than that which is honorable. Accordingly, if all the virtues are by nature equal, the three varieties of goods are equal. This is what I mean. There is an equality between feeling joy with self-control and suffering pain with self-control. The joy in the one case does not surpass in the other the steadfastness of soul that gulps down the groan when the victim is in the clutches of the torturer. Goods of the first kind are desirable, while those of the second are worthy of admiration, and in each case they are nonetheless equal, because whatever inconvenience attaches to the latter is compensated by the qualities of the good, which is so much greater. Any man who believes them to be unequal is turning away from the virtues themselves, and is surveying mere externals. True goods have the same weight and the same width. The spurious sort contain much emptiness. Hence, when they are weighed in the balance, they are found wanting, although they look imposing and grand to the gaze. Yes, my dear Lucilius, the good which true reason approves is solid and everlasting. It strengthens the spirit and exalts it so that it will always be on the heights. But those things which are thoughtlessly praised, and are goods in the opinion of the mob, merely puff us up with empty joy. And again, those things which are feared as if they were evils, merely inspire trepidation in men's minds, for the mind is disturbed by the semblance of danger, just as animals are disturbed. Hence, it is without reason that both these things distract and sting the spirit. The one is not worthy of joy, nor the other of fear. It is reason alone that is unchangeable, that holds fast to its decisions. For reason is not a slave to the senses, but a ruler over them. Reason is equal to reason, as one straight line to another, therefore Virtue also is equal to virtue. Virtue is nothing else than right reason. All virtues are reasons. Reasons are reasons if they are right reasons. If they are right, they are also equal. As reason is, so also are actions. Therefore all actions are equal. For since they resemble reason, they also resemble each other moreover i hold that actions are equal to each other in so far as they are honorable and right actions there will be of course great differences according as the material varies as it becomes now broader and now narrower now glorious and now base now manifold in scope and now limited however that which is best in all these cases is equal They are all honorable. In the same way, all good men, insofar as they are good, are equal. There are, indeed, differences of age. One is older, another younger. Of body, one is comely, another is ugly. Of fortune, this man is rich, that man poor. This one is influential, powerful, and well-known to cities and peoples. That man is unknown to most, and is obscure, but all, in respect of that wherein they are good, are equal. The senses do not decide upon things good and evil. They do not know what is useful and what is not useful. They cannot record their opinion unless they are brought face to face with a fact. They can neither see into the future nor recollect the past and they do not know what results from what. But it is from such knowledge that a sequence and succession of actions is woven, and a unity of life is created, a unity which will proceed in a straight course. Reason, therefore, is the judge of good and evil. That which is foreign and external she regards as dross, and that which is neither good nor evil she judges as merely accessory, insignificant, and trivial. For all her good resides in the soul. But there are certain goods which reason regards as primary, to which she addresses herself purposely. These are, for example, victory, good children, and the welfare of one's country. Certain others she regards as secondary. These become manifest only in adversity. For example, equanimity in enduring severe illness or exile. Certain goods are indifferent. These are no more according to nature than contrary to nature, as, for example, a discreet gait and a sedate posture in a chair. For sitting is an act that is not less according to nature than standing or walking. The two kinds of goods, which are of a higher order, are different. The primary are according to nature, such as deriving joy from the dutiful behavior of one's children, and from the well-being of one's country. The secondary are contrary to nature, such as fortitude in resisting torture, or an enduring thirst when illness makes the vitals feverish. What then, you say? Can anything that is contrary to nature be a good? Of course not. But that in which this good takes its rise, is sometimes contrary to nature. For being wounded, wasting away over a fire, being afflicted with bad health, such things are contrary to nature, but it is in accordance with nature for a man to preserve an indomitable soul amid such distresses. To explain my thought briefly, the material with which a good is concerned is sometimes Contrary to nature, but a good itself never is contrary since no good is without reason and Reason is in accordance with nature What then you ask is reason it is copying nature and What you say is the greatest good that man can possess? It is to conduct oneself according to what nature wills There is no doubt says the objector, that peace affords more happiness when it has not been assailed than when it has been recovered at the cost of great slaughter. There is no doubt also, he continues, that health which has not been impaired affords more happiness than health which has been restored to soundness by means of force, as it were, and by endurance of suffering after serious illnesses that threaten life itself. And similarly, there will be no doubt that joy is a greater good than a soul's struggle to endure to the bitter end the torments of wounds, or burning at the stake. By no means. For things that result from hazard admit of wide distinctions, since they are rated according to their usefulness in the eyes of those who experience them. But with regard to goods, the only point to be considered is that they are in agreement with nature. And this is equal in the case of all goods. When at a meeting of the Senate, we vote in favor of someone's motion, it cannot be said, A is in more accord with the motion than B. All alike vote for the same motion. I make the same statement with regard to virtues. They are all in accord with nature. And I make it with regard to goods also. They are all in accord with nature. One man dies young, another in old age, and still another in infancy, having enjoyed nothing more than a mere glimpse out into life. They have all been equally subject to death, even though death has permitted the one to proceed farther along the pathway of life, has cut off the life of the second, in his flower, and has broken off the life of the third at its very beginning. Some get their release at the dinner table, others extend their sleep into the sleep of death. Some are blotted out during dissipation. Now, contrast with these persons, individuals who have been pierced by the sword, or bitten to death by snakes, or crushed in ruins, or tortured piecemeal out of existence by the prolonged twisting of their sinews. Some of these departures may be regarded as better, some as worse. But the act of dying is equal in all. The methods of ending life are different, but the end is one and the same. Death has no degrees of greater or less, for it has the same limit in all instances, the finishing of life. The same holds true, I assure you concerning goods. You will find one amid circumstances of pure pleasure, another amid sorrow and bitterness. The one controls the favors of fortune, the other overcomes her onslaughts. Each is equally a good, although the one travels a level and easy road, and the other a rough road. And the end of them all is the same. They are goods, they are worthy of praise, They accompany virtue and reason. Virtue makes all the things that it acknowledges equal to one another. You need not wonder that this is one of our principles. We find mentioned in the works of Epicurus two goods, of which his supreme good, or blessedness, is composed of, namely, a body free from pain and a soul free from disturbance. These goods, if they are complete, do not increase, for how can that which is complete increase? The body is, let us suppose, free from pain. What increase can there be to this absence of pain? The soul is composed and calm. What increase can there be to this tranquility? Just as fair weather purified into the purest brilliancy, does not admit of a still greater degree of clearness. So, when a man takes care of his body and of his soul, weaving the texture of his good from both, his condition is perfect, and he has found the consummation of his prayers, if there is no commotion in his soul or pain in his body. Whatever delights fall to his lot over and above these two things do not increase his supreme good. They merely season it, so to speak, and add spice to it, for the absolute good of man's nature is satisfied with peace in the body and peace in the soul. I can show you at this moment, in the writings of Epicurus, a graded list of goods just like that of our own school. For there are some things, he declares, which he prefers should fall to his lot, such as bodily rest free from all inconvenience, and relaxation of the soul as it takes delight in the contemplation of its own goods. And there are other things which, though he would prefer that they did not happen, he nevertheless praises and approves. For example, the kind of resignation, in times of ill health and serious suffering, to which I alluded a moment ago, and which Epicurus displayed on that last and most blessed day of his life, for he tells us that he had to endure excruciating agony from a diseased bladder and from an ulcerated stomach so acute that it permitted no increase of pain, and yet he says that day was none the less happy, and no man can spend such a day in happiness unless he possesses the supreme good. We therefore find mentioned, even by Epicurus, those goods which one would prefer not to experience, which, however, because circumstances have decided thus, must be welcomed and approved and placed on a level with the highest goods. We cannot say that the good which has rounded out a happy life, the good for which Epicurus rendered thanks in the last words he uttered, is not equal to the greatest. Allow me, excellent Lucilius, to utter a still bolder word. If any goods could be greater than others, I should prefer those which seem harsh to those which are mild and alluring, and should pronounce them greater. For it is more of an accomplishment to break one's way through difficulties than to keep joy within bounds. It requires the same use of reason, I am fully aware, for a man to endure prosperity well, and also to endure misfortune bravely. What man may be just as brave who sleeps in front of the ramparts, without fear of danger, when no enemy attacks the camp, as the man who, when the tendons of his legs have been severed, holds himself up on his knees, and does not let fall his weapons? But it is to the blood-stained soldier, returning from the front, that men cry, Well done, thou hero! And therefore, I should bestow greater praise upon those goods that have stood trial and show courage, and have fought it out with fortune. Should I hesitate whether to give greater praise to the maimed and shriveled hand of Mucius than to the uninjured hand of the bravest man in the world? There stood Mucius despising the enemy and despising the fire and watched his hand as it dripped blood over the fire on his enemy's altar until porcena envying the fame of the hero whose punishment he was advocating ordered the fire to be removed against the will of the victim why should i not reckon this good among the primary goods and deem it in so far greater than those other goods, which are unattended by danger and have made no trial of fortune, as it is a rarer thing to have overcome a foe with a hand lost than with a hand armed. What then, you say, shall you desire this good for yourself? Of course I shall, for this is a thing that a man cannot achieve unless he can also desire it. Should I desire instead, to be allowed to stretch out my limbs for my slaves to massage, or to have a woman, or a man changed into the likeness of a woman, pull my finger joints. I cannot help believing that Mucius was all the more lucky because he manipulated the flames as calmly as if he were holding out his hand to the manipulator. He had wiped out all his previous mistakes. He finished the war unarmed and maimed, and with that stump of a hand, he conquered two kings. Farewell.